Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. As state attorney general enforcement continues to ramp up, learn about how state attorneys general work with each other and their federal partners, where they are focusing their enforcement efforts, and how to establish relationships with attorneys general so you can effectively head off or mitigate an investigation. Brownstein shareholder Alyssa Gardenschwartz, who previously served as Deputy Attorney General for Consumer Protection in Colorado, moderates a discussion with fellow shareholders Sarah Octorloni and Sarah Mercer, as well as special guest Karen White, Executive Director of the Conference of Western Attorneys General and the Attorney General Alliance. My name is Alyssa Gardenschwartz. I am a litigation shareholder here at Brownstein Hyatt Farber Schreck. Um, And my fellow panelists and I today are going to talk to you about navigating the era of increased state attorney general enforcement. So in the invite for this program, we pointed out that a recent study showed that multi-state AG actions have collected approximately $106 billion since 2000. That's excluding the uh, 1998 master settlement agreement that the attorneys general Um, made with the big tobacco manufacturers, which um, provided for $205 billion to be paid out over several years. Um, And that same study also found that uh, AGs acting on their own have collected a total of about $37 billion in that same time period against companies in uh, doing business in the United States. Um, We've also been hearing lately that attorneys general are um, at the forefront of several issues. For example, uh, we've heard recently that bipartisan coalitions of attorneys general are investigating um, the, uh, the large tech platforms for potential antitrust violations. We are seeing that uh, attorneys general are taking the lead in data breach cases, given that there is no um, federal law governing breach notification. That's still done on a state-by-state basis. And, of course, attorneys general are taking the lead in the litigation against opioid manufacturers, distributors, and retailers. We're also seeing that AGs are playing uh, a bigger part on the policy stage. Uh, They are voicing their opinions through lawsuits against the federal government, through um, sign-on letters that are sent uh, to Congress to address federal legislation and to letters to federal agencies commenting on their activities. And through these mechanisms, AGs are active in areas like immigration, environmental policy, and gun control. And so AGs are becoming formidable players on uh, both the regulatory enforcement stage as well as in policymaking. Uh, I have a panel here uh, with me of accomplished women who are um, going to uh, share their insights with you today on how to manage your business in this time of increased uh, attorney general engagement. Um, I'm just going to introduce folks briefly, and then we'll get right into it. So we have um, Karen White, who is the executive director of the Conference of Western Attorneys General and the Attorney General Alliance. She's been with that organization for 27 years and has um, incredible knowledge about the attorney general community and their relationships. Um, We have Sarah Octorloni, who is also a litigation shareholder here at Brownstein and who is an accomplished consumer finance lawyer. 
prior to practicing at Brownstein, she was with the Consumer Financial, Financial Protection Bureau, the CFPB, who is a common partner uh, in enforcement with the state attorneys general. And last but absolutely not least, we've got Sarah Mercer, who is a shareholder in our government relations department here at Brownstein. Uh, she has tremendous expertise in state and local government affairs and has been bringing that expertise to bear uh, in the past several years in the um, state AG space where she's developed uh, a considerable understanding of the political landscape and relationships there. So with that, I'm going to kick it over to Karen to talk about um, her organization as well as the attorney general community. Thank you. Um, and thanks to Brownstein and their attorney general focus and their practice group. Um, we appreciate working with them as we try to define for some of you uh, what the attorney general role is. It's uh, Attorney general isn't a constitutional officer's name of states that rolls right off of most people's lists. Uh, likely you can win jeopardy with uh, some sort of description about what AGs do and who they are. So let me tell you, who, who are these people? Uh, what do they do? And why you should care? So our organization, the Attorney General Alliance, and our um, umbrella organization, the Conference of Western Attorneys General, um, consists of 42 members across the country who are interested in reaching their constituents. Constituents include their voters, but they also include companies and industries and thought leaders. Um, CWEG generally focuses, the, the Western group focuses on public lands, the environment, water, energy, and tribal issues. Um, the AGA, the AG Alliance, was formed because it deals with pop-up issues, uh, like the little kiosks in the mall when we see stores. AGs have events that they get firebombed on top of them, and they have to uh, react quickly um, and, and talk about public policy and get the stakeholders together to figure out what's going on. I think you've probably seen vaping in the news lately. AGs had worked tangentially with vaping for years um, under our umbrella of, of the tobacco settlement and thinking about it in those terms. Well, uh, surprise, there are all kinds of health issues that are coming about on the cannabis front and on the nicotine front. Um, so AGs have popped up and, and parachuted in. Um, so that's why the AGA exists, to, to help provide rule of law enhancement in foreign countries, but also to serve as a, a pop-up issue handler um, for AGs across the country. So attorneys general have the nickname of the people's lawyer for the state. Um, that is kind of a misnomer um, because AGs have much broader responsibility than that. They have a constitutional relationship to their governor, their legislature, other state government agencies, and uh, their visibility um, as policy leaders and thought leaders and, and uh, dealing with the political implications of decisions states have to make um, has really come to the forefront. Um, uh, traditionally, states dealt with things um, in, in direct litigation, um, they've moved into having a lot of investigative authority as legislatures try to deal uh, with different e legal issues. They also advocate um, for priorities on legal positions and policies, and, and they issue 
opinions, helping to clarify laws uh, to help give guidance um, to people in in areas. Um, their responsibilities include with work, working within their own state, but increasingly. Uh, it's focused on the multi-state basis, addressing nationwide issues. Uh, they protect consumers from fraud, abuse, and unfair practices. Um, they pursue partnerships both individually and uh, with stakeholders, uh, addressing um, timely and and pertinent uh, uh, matters that come up. Um, they protect the marketplace. They ensure a level playing field for consumers. Uh, they're, they're the advocates for consumers uh, on, the, on the state level and increasingly on a national level in a united way. Um, I think you've seen probably in the news some antitrust inve- investigations. Alyssa referenced um, some large tech platforms. Um, they also insert, uh, assert environmental protections for states, and, and they help state agencies that manage minerals, energy, and environment in the public lands. Um, they also have a very important role with working with the tribal stakeholders, equal sovereign governments uh, with states and, and our federal partners. Um, AG engagement, why should you care about these people? Um, it's always better to know someone before you need them. Personal contact changes perception. So if you need to deliver a message, it's really nice to have a team like the Brown, like that the Brownstein team that has relationships um, that can help you facilitate a conversation rather than get a, a CID or, or some sort of administrative action towards you. Um, our particular organization acts as a facilitator um, for those kinds of opportunities for, for personal interaction. Uh, you may uh, have seen AG actions on financial services, on scams, on cybersecurity and Internet issues, antitrust issues, uh, cannabis and sports betting. Those are just um, a few of the things I've worked on in, say, the last six months. Um, I'd encourage you to think about your Brownstein team as part of the ongoing conversation with AGs in, in many of these areas and to to contact them and learn more about the proactive steps that you might want to take um, to advocate for your interests and those of your industry. Thank you, Karen. That was excellent. Um, So I'm going to continue um, to talk uh, a little bit more in depth about the uh, AG office. Um, I uh, worked in the Colorado AG's office for about 12 years and um, can share some uh, inside knowledge on how the offices operate and um, how enforcement priorities kind of come into being and how they're executed on. So this is a generic org chart for a state AG office. Um, And I would say that that top level is pretty uniformly the same in all AG offices, where there is a chief deputy um, who essentially uh, oversees the day-to-day legal operations of the office um, and also operates as the, um, what I would say, the policy filter for the office to ensure that whatever legal work is going on within the office, um, when appropriate, is, you know, properly reflects that the AG's priorities um, and policies. The solicitor general role um, is essentially the top appellate lawyer for the state. 
that person represents the state in major appellate litigation. Um, will uh, oversee the uh, the process of determining whether or not the AG wants to um, join an amicus brief. Uh, the AGs get amicus brief requests from their fellow AGs, from other litigants all the time. I think I fielded at least one or two um, amicus requests a month when I was in the AG's office. Um, and the Solicitor General also oversees the opinions that you heard Karen reference. Um, the AGs oftentimes are called upon to issue opinions as to the constitutionality of laws or proposed rules and regulations. The Solicitor General role oversees that process. Um, and then most offices also have a chief of staff that um, oversees sort of the administration op- administrative operations of the office. Now, the, the lower half of this chart tends to vary quite a bit among AG offices. Um, generally speaking, there is another layer of senior management that has substantive oversight over particular areas. For example, I was the consumer protection uh, chief in the AG's office. Um, every AG's office has some sort of consumer protection chief. Uh, You also generally see that every office has somebody that oversees civil litigation, um, meaning the litigation that's against the state, because the AG in large part operates as the chief um, legal advisor to state agencies. Um, The other thing to the other important thing to note about that bottom half of the chart is when we are talking about enforcement, um, when the AG is acting in their chief law enforcement agent or officer capacity, uh, the investigations, the enforcement activity um, percolates actually more at that lower layer. Um, You usually have senior folks that have an understanding of what the AG's priorities are, and they are making sure that whatever bubbles up matches those priorities. But that's where investigations start. They don't necessarily start from the top down. Let's talk a little bit about where attorney generals get their authority. So um, they do have authority under common law, and um, uh, it's mostly the parents, depending on how you choose to pronounce it, I pronounce it parents patriae, um, but it essentially means the AGs are the parent of the nation. They have the authority to operate, um, to bring cases, to preserve the well-being, both the physical and economical well-being of their citizens. Um, Where we're seeing the AGs use this authority is in the opioid litigation that has been going on. Uh, The cases that have been filed involve allegations not just of um, violations of Consumer Protection Act acts or racketeering laws, but also um, AGs are bringing tort claims Uh, public nuisance, negligence, using their parents' authority. The other thing um, that comes from common law in terms of AG authority is AGs are uh, the the stewards of charitable assets within their state. So you see AGs using this particular authority a lot in the healthcare space. So if you see a transition of a nonprofit hospital to a for-profit hospital, or a nonprofit system merging with another nonprofit system, that's where AGs step in to ensure that those charitable assets are being used for their intended purpose and are not getting wasted. 
Obviously, AGs also have enforcement authority by statute. Um, most common statute, state statutes you see allowing for AG enforcement are consumer protection statutes, antitrust statutes. Um, AGs have criminal authority. The degree to which they have criminal jurisdiction varies from state to state. Um, and they are typically the officers that are charged with bringing any sort of Medicaid fraud cases. Um, attorneys general also have enforcement authority under about 24 federal laws. Um, you, the most uh, noticeable um, exercise of this authority is in the antitrust arena. Um, you often see states bring antitrust cases together in federal court enforcing Clayton Act, Sherman Act. Um, the recent example of this is there's a case pending in the Eastern District of Pennsylvania um, I think it's about 42 states that have brought an action against a variety of generic drug manufacturers um, making allegations of price fixing and market allocation. Um, and that's pretty common, again, in the antitrust space to um, just all proceed under one federal law. Oddly enough, there are a lot of consumer protection federal laws that allow for state AG enforcement of Dodd-Frank, the Children's Online Protection at, or the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, um, the uh, TCPA, you don't see states using those quite as often, which I find to be interesting. Um, uh, the COPPA, the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, has been used a, a bit more um, by the New York AG, by the New Mexico AG. The Texas AG brought in action under COPPA a little while ago. Um, I think you may see a little bit more of this in the next few years just because it does allow for AGs to all proceed in one court, in one action. But there can also be a strategic decision to continue what they've been doing in consumer protection for a long time, which is to make defendants fight on multiple fronts. And so they all file in their respective state courts. Again, this is what's going on with the opioid litigation, except for Alabama, who chose to file in the multi-district litigation that's going on there. Um, how do AGs come up with their enforcement priorities? So um, again, senior management within the AG's office has a general sense of um, sort of policy considerations that might come into play for investigations. But in large part, investigations are informed by um, things coming up to the staff that indicate that there might be violations of the law. The, the most um, important source that AGs use are consumer complaints. Uh, they most AG offices have consumer complaint lines. They collect complaints, and they're looking at, you know, certainly the number of complaints that come in against a company, as well as um, whether or not those complaints actually um, reflect a, a violation of the law that the attorney general has jurisdiction to address. Um, they can also, uh, they work with their Better Business Bureaus to look at those complaints. They have, the AGs have access to the Federal Trade Commission's Consumer Complaint Database, Consumer Sentinel, and I believe they still have access to the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau's Complaint Database. Um, just a note on consumer complaints. A lot of times we had folks come into the AG's office when um, we were investigating them um, and when we pointed out that they had many, many consumer complaints, they would say, 
well, we know that you have 100 consumer complaints, but we have 5,000 customers, so relatively speaking, that's not a big deal. Um, I will tell you that that does not necessarily resonate with the AG's office, particularly if all those complaints um, address the same problem. So, um, and there's also an understanding that not all consumers complain. So um, that isn't necessarily going to get you a lot of traction with an AG's office. Um, I would strongly encourage folks to keep track of their complaints that are being lodged against them and use that um, as a potential red flag to maybe do some internal investigation, make sure that compliance is what it should be, make sure that people are not running afoul of the law, because I will tell you that the AGs are paying very close attention to those complaints. Um, the states and the federal consumer protection authorities and federal authorities in general communicate frequently. Um, when I was uh, in the AG's office, I would talk to the other consumer chiefs in other AG's offices monthly, at least. There are um, organizations like Karen's organization, CWAG, um, AGA, uh, the National Association of Attorneys General, that are constantly putting on programming that allows the AGs and their staff to come together and discuss things. And I will tell you that I absolutely opened several investigations based on hearing from um, another state that there was a problem going on in their state and that company was doing business in Colorado. So something to keep in mind. They talk regularly. Same thing with the federal authorities. What are the tools in the AG's toolbox um, for enforcement? Uh, we've talked a lot about multi-state actions. These are absolutely the sledgehammer in the toolbox for AG's. They allow the AGs to bring their collective enforcement efforts to bear, and they have been able to leverage large monetary settlements and significant injunctive relief by working together. Um, uh, just a couple stats here that I pulled out from the, the um, Good Jobs First report that I mentioned in the beginning. Um, <clears throat> the way that multi-states operate is that you have generally a couple of lead states, and an executive committee, and those are the folks that you're going to be dealing with if you are a target of an AG investigation. Um, they will get information out to the other states that are participating in the multi-state. Uh, they can be, as I said, very effective, but I will tell you that multi-states have their challenges because a lot of times states' interests and um, uh, philosophical approaches to investigation don't always align. Um, there are states that may favor higher amounts of monetary relief over strong injunctive relief. Um, there are state and vice versa. There are states that may want to approach settlement earlier on in investigation, whereas other states might want to have more of a case in place before they start talking settlement. Um, and also states obviously can proceed on their own. Um, and the bigger states, California, New York, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, will do this on a regular basis, and they can um, bring pretty significant uh, penalties uh, to bear um, and pretty big settlements to bear in these cases. Um, so don't count, don't count an AG out if they're not acting with their sister states. Um, 
finally, I just want to briefly go over how um, the mechanics of a, a, an AG investigation operate. Um, Karen mentioned earlier civil uh, receiving a CID, a civil investigative demand. Um, that's most commonly how AG investigations are initiated. You hopefully get a call before you get a CID, but you may just get the CID. Um, they will go to the target of the investigation as well as third parties. Um, very often those third parties are banks if there is a reason that the AG wants to follow the money in an investigation. AGs can also uh, conduct civil investigative hearings, which is essentially a deposition. Um, and they can also informally talk to witnesses and try and figure out what's going on. And by the way, um, those witnesses oftentimes will be former employees. Um and here's what I'll leave you with before um, turning it over to Sarah and Sarah to um, help you ensure that you don't become the subject of, a, a, of an AG investigation. If you do receive a subpoena, um, my advice to you is to engage. Um, don't ignore it. Um, pick up the phone. Um, call your lawyer. <laughs> or um, make sure that you talk to the AG's office and offer to educate them about your business practices if you think that the AG's office has got it wrong. And also know that you can ask the AG's office what they really need from what they've requested in their subpoena. Um, because oftentimes you can negotiate the scope of that subpoena down so that they're getting the information that they really need and you're not giving any information away that you don't need to. And so with that, I will turn it over to Sarah Octorloni, who will talk to you about how to figure out if you might be the subject of an investigation. Oh, we have a... Are we allowed to ask a question? We have an audience question. We have an audience question. Yeah, so the question was that um, what restrictions are there, if any, um, on states sharing information if there isn't a formal multi-state going on? So I will tell you, not many. Um, I would say that there are a lot of states that have statutes that say that if they are collecting investigative information, they can share that with other, um, with other law enforcement agencies, including those that may exist out of state. Um, I think, though, as a company, you could approach an agency. You could say, you know, this is confidential, you know, we don't want this shared with any other states. I, you know, you might get some pushback on that because I think, you know, legally speaking, there's not typically law enforcement agencies are able to share information um, of a civil investigation with each other. I would say there might be some particular types of information that have particularly federal limitations, um, as well as bank supervisory information that have would have both state and federal limitations. And so um, in some instances, you might want to consider the types of information. So the Right to Financial Privacy Act, for instance, may prevent sharing of certain types of information um, with law enforcement agencies that don't have expressed jurisdiction over that particular investigation. Um, IRS material, so Internal Revenue Service material, is very locked down. Um, as well as some medical information and then um, confidential supervisor information from most of the financial services regulators um, have some sort of restriction, and that will often vary um, from state to state. 
Um, and so if you have any questions about that, you might want to talk to somebody who knows um, the state information sharing relative to that particular type of data. Right. And I will say with respect to um, federal agencies sharing with the states, um, typically you, if you've provided information to the Federal Trade Commission, um, you the the state, in order for them to share that information with the state, um, the state has to submit paperwork to the FTC um, attesting that they will keep that information confidential um, and the, the parties that are being investigated, investigated have to sign off on that state being able to receive information. But um, aside from the restrictions that Sarah referenced, um, it's there, there can be pretty free in sharing going back and forth among the states yeah. with some data. So, you know, if uh, for all the attorneys who are out there listening, um, particularly those of us who are from a litigation background, we have a tendency to be reactive. And um, it may not always be natural to be thinking proactively um, however, after spending some time with Karen um, and also Alyssa and, and Sarah Mercer, um, they, are, they are convincing me more and more that, um, at least in the area of um, state attorney general, um, when you have so many um, and diverse um, jurisdictions to be concerned about, an ounce of prevention, prevention um, really can uh, be worth much more than a pound of cure. Um, and so what I'd like to talk about uh, just a little bit is uh, provide you a few talking points or rules of the roads or, or points of self-reflection so that um, if you're considering a proactive AG strategy, you can bring it back to the leadership at your company and talk about the benefits um, uh, of potentially looking into that sort of activity for your company. Um, and first, I'm going to start off with the easy one, and that is the don't bother approach. Um, so basically, if your business acquires customers through consumer deception scams, like sending out fake checks or abject lies on the television, radio, or internet, just don't bother. You can, you can stop uh, the webcast right here. <laughs> just go off and, and do something else because you're, you aren't going to get much out of an AG relationship. Um, likewise, if you are the person calling me and telling me that my social security number was sold and <laughs> I need to call the Social Security Administration and get a new one, again, I would not bother spending much time on a proactive AG relationship. Um, the, the types of fraudulent behavior like that is not what we're talking about. Um, what we're really talking about here is the types of relationships that you can um, create with um, these policymakers and decision makers to educate people about your product um, and to explain to them about distinctions. Um, and the, um, you know, one of the first points I'd like to bring up is um, the type of borderline products that have historically been um, approached by AGs. Um, as concerning, but perhaps yours is different. Um, and so, for example, door-to-door -door marketing has had a long history of consumer protection issues, um, as well as higher-priced or premium-priced goods during um, or after natural disasters. Those are the types of things where um, they have a long history of concern. And so if you are engaged in a business that happens to um, have those types of products or services, it might be really worth your time to reflect and see if some type of proactive outreach can um, differentiate or provide 
provide some sort of distinction for your project in the mind of these important decision makers. Uh, likewise, um, and I'm putting this into the category of um, almost, you should almost absolutely consider a broad, proactive AG outreach if you uh, have a company that's involved in these categories. Because these are categories that um, have a strong history of being traditionally under the AG microscope. And um, in particular, if you happen to have a product or a service that can be confused with one of these companies or one of these products. And so tobacco would be the first one. Um, the, the amount of interaction between the attorneys generals across the United States um, and the tobacco industry is intense, has a long history. And so if you have a product that's related to that in the nicotine area, in the ignitables area, um, and other sort of um, a novel delivery method, anything that's related to that product, and you want to make sure that your product is thought of differently, um, I would highly recommend a proactive strategy. Um, again, if you are doing something related to the pharmaceutical industry, but it may not be quite there, and you're concerned about it being confused as a pharmaceutical. So, for example, nutrition, supplements, additives, other types of um, food products or, um, you know, chemical products that are difficult to understand where education might help you um, have, might help you um, get a different uh, look um, from these important policymakers. Um, again, I would highly recommend that kind of approach. Uh, you know, there's a long history of AGs looking at balloon loans, door-to-door um, -door sales, uh, safety claims, um, and other, and I call them the trite scams, you know, the, the types of things that we, we've heard about for years and years, time after time. Um, if your product is different from that, is special, is somehow unique, um, but has the danger because of um, certain aspects that are similar to being confused with one of those, again, I highly recommend some sort of proactive strategy. Um, because if your product is different, you really don't want to be lumped into um, some of these areas that traditionally fall into more of these concerning categories. Um, and then finally, if you have a product or a service or an entertainment that's consumed by children, and, um, and either you're marketing to children or it has features that are attractive to children because um, of their color, because of their flavor, um, or because they have a cachet that's attractive to children, um, and there's a danger that your product could be confused um, for something that has historically been dangerous to children. Um, it's, it's also very important that you take that effort to show how um, your product is different from these other issues that have arisen in the past, um, how you're you know, paving a new path, so to speak. Um, and then finally, on the uh, I would say the the solid advice area um, is if you um, have products um, that fall into areas that really traditionally have bipartisan support and attention of AGs, um, again, I think it would be really worthwhile to um, consider whether or not an AG outreach strategy seems right for your company. And again, um, if you do actually sell a tobacco product, if you're in the financial services industry, 
um, particularly if you have any products that could cause overdrafts um, or fees that are confusing or difficult to understand, um, or if you have any sort of negative notice enrollment, um, those are all areas where um, AG attention has been very historically focused um, on both sides of the aisle um, and over many, many years. Um, also, I would also take a look at um, the antitrust powers of the AGs. Like we've said, um, those are two of the federal acts that AGs are most likely to bring actions to enforce. And, um, you know, and again, it has bipartisan support. You see both Democrats and Republicans um, filing these actions. Um, and so it's something that should be of universal concern to everyone. And let me also say, when, uh, when thinking about an AG relationship, it doesn't necessarily always need to be defensive. Sometimes it can be um, proactive in a way that supports a potential action. So, and the best example is in the monopoly area. If you happen to be a smaller competitor in the market that's dominated by a significant company, um, it may be really helpful to establish a relationship so that you can talk to these AGs about how, um, you know, the alleged monopolists have been impacting innovation for you, impacting your ability to reach consumers or impacting your ability to access a vital resource. And so having those types of relationships um, may not be just to defend you from AG inquiry, but maybe in order to um, educate and provide um, information so that an orderly inquiry and an educated inquiry, inquiry can happen for the benefit of your industry. Um, I'd also like to um, just point out some other sort of bigger picture issues is that some state AG offices have invested significantly in infrastructures that have special areas of focus. They have specialists. Um, they have really smart, educated people who've um, spent, you know, decades or more on particular topics and are very talented. Um, and to, if you have a product that falls within one of those areas, it's important um, instead of you know just a broad-based approach, also to have um, a targeted approach as well. So I've listed just a few examples on this slide. Um, you know, New York uh, AG's Office for Wall Street Issues is probably the first example. Um, like Karen mentioned, the um, environmental issues, land rights issues for the seat for the um, western states, um, which I like to call, being from Colorado, Nebraska, our national treasure states. Um, <laughs> um, you know, and it goes on from there. I'm sure you can come up with other examples in addition to the ones I've listed. Um, and another sort of final point on this front is. Um, the state AGs are um, some of the strongest protectors of our federalist system of government. And this is regardless of the party or the platform. Um, they will fight to preserve states' rights, um, not just in issues that are directly related to the state's interests and the state's policies or what their government is, is hoping to do, but um, in ways that may sneak up on you from time to time. Um, you know, if, if you happen to be in a private action and are urging uh, 
a court to approach an issue that may actually be detrimental to states' rights or states' sovereignty, um, you might be surprised when an AG steps in with an amicus. So, so keeping that sort of, um, you know, uh, specter in mind when you're um, approaching particularly big litigation issues um, is also helpful. And then my very last slide. Um, so point one on the slide, I'll give you a second to reach it, to read it. Um, I'm actually quoting my father on this, um, who, uh, who has made the point of observing that, um, you know, a high degree of outrage, even if there's a few victims, is as significant as a large number of victims when there's just ordinary bad or criminal behavior. Uh, and when you look at the historical examples of AG enforcement, um, what that shows you is that if you're involved in an industry that uh, is related or has consumers where there's an emotional charge to it, um, you should really be reflective about the need to tell your story, explain your product, differentiate it, and establish those relationships early so that if the unexpected happens, uh, you've, you've laid the groundwork and you're able to have those important conversations. Um, I gave a few examples. So children, issues involving sexual activity, the beginning of life, the end of the life, end of life, and veterans. These are, these are all um, something that most people feel very strongly about. Um, and so when bad things happen to, to them or bad things happen related to these issues, um, often they become very charged and there's a quick call for action with not a lot of opportunity for reflection. And that's when you need to get immediate access. Um, and that's why having a more proactive approach could be very beneficial. Thank you, Sarah. And um, just to just one point on that, because I think that's that's a really important point to make. Um, certainly, when we were reviewing consumer complaints in the AG's office, um, not only did we look for numerosity and patterns, we also looked for vulnerable populations. Right? If it looked like there was a practice that was preying on a particular vulnerable population, that's something that would definitely come to the forefront in terms of an enforcement priority. So really good insight on that. That's, that's my dad. Thank you, Dad. <laughs> and Alyssa, can I weigh in on that? And one thing that companies need to think about when they think about AGs is in most state structures, the AG speaks on behalf of the people of the state. We've seen some new up-and-coming lawsuits that empower 2,500 municipalities, cities, counties um, to get involved. If you have a relationship with an AG and you see something happening with your industry, your your AG has connections to all those counties, cities, uh, and municipalities. Um, we've seen it. Uh, City of Chicago sued uh, Equifax over the largest data breach in history. Um, we've seen cities in, here in Colorado, Alyssa, when you were working for the AG's office, um, a local county decided they didn't want fracking. And the AG's vigorously and successfully defended the Oil and Gas Commission and their power um, in that area within the state. Um, you, you th those reach into all kinds of places in California um, with with enforcement on on environmental protection uh, federal statutes. So when the log jam in in 
D.C. prevents people's um, the, the federal legislation from being enforced. You have to remember the next line of defense is 56 jurisdictions headed by attorneys general. Um, that includes the, the territories. Um, so I, I would encourage you uh, to try to um, limit the number of entities, number of battles you're going to fight on these fronts. And, and that would lead, that leads right into having a more proactive approach and knowing your AG so you can go to them when you see these types of things come up. That's right. And Sarah Mercer is going to tell us exactly how to execute on that proactive approach and make it successful. Yeah, so this is the secret sauce. This is what everybody's been waiting for. Um, you know, I, I think one one issue that I would add to Sarah's list is in terms of issues of self-reflection increasingly is data privacy, um, which more and more businesses are involved with. So if you're in the business of collecting and holding personally identifiable information, uh, this is an area where attorneys generals are increasingly getting involved with, uh, particularly when that consumer information uh, not only is being held, but when there's another aspect of consumer information that's maybe being sold as part of the business model. So that's just another area for self-reflection. Um, so what what makes a successful proactive outreach, um, and and how do you do it? Uh, you know, one aspect that we've really only touched on just sort of briefly here so far is the fact that attorneys general are elected officials. So in in almost all the states. And so there is a political component to this. And Alyssa touched on that a little bit when she was discussing sort of that role of certain folks in the office to ensure that the policy priorities are being carried out by the AG's office as they're pursuing litigation or prioritizing um, where they're deploying resources. Uh, But this is not uh, like other government relations interactions, because these elected officials do have the stewardship um, responsibilities, uh, this protection of the public, uh, and legal oversight. And so it is this really unique mixture of needing to develop and cultivate and find a team of people within your organization, as well as with consultants on the outside, who can help you to develop a really thoughtful approach. And there are really three keys to that and uh, that kind of fall under this umbrella that you need to commit to invest in these relationships. So, and that requires consistency, a dedicated team, and a real interest and curiosity about getting to know who these attorneys general are and what they care about on both sides of the aisle. Um, You know, often with political strategies and government relations strategies that's often centered around uh, political giving as well as lobbying. And this is different. There's a component and an aspect of that. But this is so much about education and really about developing and differentiating uh, who you are and what your business is from what attorneys general might think or perceive as being problematic. Um, So this takes this takes time. Um, Karen said earlier that you know personal interaction can change perception, and the reason that that happens isn't as 
you know, I think is sometimes commonly thought of in the government relations space that you show up at a fundraiser, you give a check, you have a conversation over a cocktail, and now you have a relationship and you can go to that person for what, what the, you need. That's not how it works with attorneys general. It's not really how it works with most elected officials, but it's not how it works with attorneys general, certainly. And really what that personal interaction is, why that changes perception is because it's providing an opportunity to deliver that education and to have a conversation. And it it's not enough to have one 15-minute or 30-minute sit-down with an attorney general uh, or with senior staff. It needs to be a development and a commitment to develop a relationship over time. And regular and consistent interaction provides an opportunity to answer questions as they come up uh, and to um, ask questions and to provide clarity uh, when when there is uncertainty. That's really why it's important uh, to have and to designate a team who's going to serve in this capacity. Um, you know, oftentimes membership, say, in CWAG or other attorneys general organizations, uh, you know, some companies feel like a membership in that is enough because that provides access. But then where they fall short is that they don't think about who's going to be going to those meetings. And, and if are the people who are attending those meetings the same people who are speaking with the same voice who can sort of continue a conversation from six months before, or from three months before, or from nine months before? Um, and so really designating individuals who are smart on the law but also who understand the political component is really, really key. And then uh, the second thing that I'll, I'll talk about is that having – and stepping into this space requires a desire and a value of transparency and clarity over obscurity and uncertainty. So there are many businesses who um, make money or who operate in a gray area, and that is an area that they want to be because when the regulations are gray, that affords them certain opportunities. Being willing to come into the attorney general space and engage with attorneys general it really needs to be a desire to provide information and transparency into the business and clarity about what the business practices are, because that's how that education is going to happen. And that's how trust gets built. Uh, and when things go wrong, when consumer complaints come in, that's when, when there's trust, that's when an attorney's general office, a senior staff member or the attorney general, him or herself, will pick up the phone and make a telephone call before filing or before delivering a CID or other, you know, kind of uh, enforcement action. And likewise, the mindset of asking for permission and not forgiveness is very important in this space. Because again, especially in this age of uh, technology and of sort of emerging industries that we've seen, um, there can often be in the, in the purely political space a real business advantage to uh, come into a space uh, and just, with, you know, when there aren't any rules, when, when the law is very, very gray, to come into a space to develop market share and then say, okay, now we're ready for regulation. And we've seen that business model um, a lot over the last decade. And while that can be successful, again, in perhaps a legislative context, a regulatory context, in the attorney's general space, if those other factors that Sarah listed are there, that can be a recipe for 
for real problems because that can be a situation where, you know, not only might there be adverse regulations or legislation uh, against your business or against the industry that's sort of emerging into the space, but more than that, there could be um, sanctions, there could be, you know, fines, there could be litigation that could make the your business, you know, pretty expensive for a while. And so that mindset of wanting to come in and ask for permission and not sort of keep a head down, but rather, you know, popping your head up actually and saying, hey, we're coming into this space. We've started this business. Here's, you know, why you might you might think just on the surface that it, it looks like this other kind of business that's been problematic for consumers in the past, say, but here's how we're different. Um, that's a really important mindset to have. So that's that's the that's that those are really the keys i mean i think it's uh maybe sounds a little easier than it is to execute particularly the commitment of time and consistency and time and resources and and that's really just because you know a lot of people are wearing a lot of hats particularly in the legal department um of of a company and to ask people to do one more thing sometimes seems like a lot but as sarah said earlier um you know an ounce of prevention can really provide a pound of cure at the end of the day. And Sarah, can I add one thing? This is Karen. When you take a look at your team, your legal team, your government affairs team, who you're acting with on your AG team, take a look at the diversity that we now have for state AGs. We have six African-American attorneys general. We have an Asian-American attorney general. We have our first Sikh Attorney General. We have a contingency of Jewish Attorneys General. We have several Mormon Attorneys General. We have Catholic Attorneys General. We are diverse in in, in female female Attorneys General. We are diverse just as the rest of the population is. So when you take a look at the group that you're putting together to interact, um, remember, for the first time in this last election, uh, the last two elections, last previous four years, we've had the first LGBTQ attorneys general openly elected. Um, And so it's important when you're trying to talk about the values of your team that you also realize that uh, the face of the legal industry is changing and it's being led um, by a lot of these political leaders. Yeah, thanks, Karen. I'll I'll add one more thing to that in terms of, you know, when you're looking at where to draw your team members from. In so many companies, the government affairs team is often siloed from the legal team. And this is really a space where if if those two parts of the organization can partner together, uh, that can really help to create um, an environment for success. Which is clearly something that we've done here at Brownstein, right? I mean, this is a a team that's government relations, uh, litigation, government investigations, absolutely necessary in this space. And just to go back to what um, Sarah was saying about um, transparency and about asking for permission over forgiveness, I can tell you from being on the other side, um, that absolutely is the way to proceed in this environment, right? Um, You know, if... If you are not transparent, um, if you don't pick up the phone and engage when you get a subpoena, if you don't reach out proactively to talk about potential regulation, the assumption is on the AG side that um, you have something to hide for a reason. And that's um, that's not the narrative that you want to start 
with your state AGs, right? If they're going to be in a position to oversee, regulate, investigate your industry. Um, You know, I, I like to think about it as, you know, as a litigator, you want to be the one that sets the narrative. And establishing uh, proactively relationships with AGs and their staff enables you to establish the narrative and have that be what guides their uh, enforcement and engagement in your industry. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you being here or being out there electronically. And um, please let us know if you have further questions. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.